Hear the word of the Lord. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This is the word of the Lord. brought each one of us to church today. God, thank you for getting us here safely. Thank you, Lord, that we have a warm, dry place that we can congregate on this Lord's Day. God, we pray you'd bless us now as our hearts and our minds are affixed on your word. We pray, Lord, that you would just give us an openness, a receptiveness, and Lord, we pray that you would give us great understanding in your holy word today. God, we pray that through our time in your word, we wouldn't just grow in knowledge, but Lord, that you would change us, that you would continue to conform each and every one of us into the image of Christ, that God, you would help us to embody the life of Christ in the way that we think and speak and live, even going out of this church today. Father, lastly, we want to pray for any among us who have joined us that are not yet Christians. They've never put their faith in Jesus. Lord, thank you that they're here. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would today, for the first time in their lives, give them faith. Help them to trust and to believe in Jesus, our Messiah. So God, would you bless us now in your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Please be seated. Definitely the rain made it probably a bit of a challenge for some of us to even at the level of desire, want to get out of our bed and get to church and then drive down here. But now that we're here, what a treat it is to sit and just hear that rain falling outside of the sanctuary while worshiping together and studying God's word. Um, Mark chapter 6, we've read together the first six verses. And it's a, it's a really um, kind of jarring shift from what we saw at the end of chapter 5 which was a passage that dealt with some really extraordinary faith by a couple of individuals, coupled with some extraordinary miracles by our Savior, Jesus. And now we get to chapter 6 and the rejection of Jesus. Now, one of the features of small-town America is that small towns oftentimes celebrate their heroes, it's very hard to stand out in a really big city like Los Angeles or New York. There are plenty of prominent people who have come from places like that and been influential. But in small towns, when somebody really takes off and kind of makes it big, it's, it's a big deal. And those small towns oftentimes make that person their hometown hero. 
They might have statues erected in that person's honor. They probably have streets named after them. Sometimes they even have a sign on the way into the town on the highway that says, home of fill-in-the-blank Elvis or somebody like that. Nazareth, you should know, was a small town at the time of Jesus. Uh, Approximately 500 residents in the town of Nazareth. It was a place that nobody talked about and many people had never heard of. Sort of like Buellton, I suppose. No offense to anybody coming here from Buellton this morning. But come on, if you were to ask people from other states, where's Buellton, California? They're probably not going to find that on the map. Shoot, there's a lot of people in California that if you said, where's Buellton, they wouldn't be able to find it on a map. And Nazareth was like that. It was just a town nobody really knew much about. But it was the town that our Savior, Jesus, was raised in. He grew up here in Nazareth. Of course, we know he was born in Bethlehem, but his family settled in Nazareth. He grew up there. And so in a town of this size, 500 people, we, would, we could rightly conclude that everyone knew everyone. Therefore, when Jesus' ministry gets going and it gains the kind of popularity that it had reached by the time we get to Mark chapter 6, the people of Nazareth intimately knew who this rising star was. And one would expect that they would have claimed claimed him as their own, a hometown hero of sorts. But as we see here, that's not how they responded to him, at least not initially. Rather than being Nazareth's hometown hero, the people determined to make Jesus a hometown zero. They wanted to reject him, and they stood in opposition to him. And as a result, the people of this town ended up missing out on the profound blessings that receiving Jesus and responding to Jesus by faith could have brought to them. And so we're going to look together at the text and try to uncover why that was the case. The text begins in the first three verses by detailing Jesus' rejection. We could summarize these verses by saying, Nazareth rejects Jesus. Look again at verse 1. We get the context set up for us here. Mark writes this. He says, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Went away from where, we might ask? Well, in the previous chapter, and in much of Mark up to this point, Jesus has been ministering north of Nazareth, about 20 miles north, along the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was just at the end of chapter 5, in a city called Capernaum. And Jesus has been ministering a lot in Capernaum, and he's been doing very, very mighty things there. As chapter 5 came to a close, Jesus actually healed a woman who had had an issue that caused internal bleeding and this flow of blood for 12 years, and Jesus healed her. Immediately after that, Jesus raised a 12-year-old girl from the dead, when her father Jairus came and asked him. So Jesus is coming now from Capernaum. He's sort of riding, uh, riding on, on this wave of ministry success, if you will, and he comes now to Nazareth with his disciples. Verse 2 continues, and it says this, that on the Sabbath, Saturday, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Make note of that. Saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Verse 3 is, not this the carpenter? 
the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So on this particular Sabbath, Jesus, like he would have done every Sabbath, joins the community in going to the synagogue. And he's there to worship with the community, but as a traveling rabbi, he's invited to do the teaching and the instructing that morning. And we read here that his teaching had quite an effect. The word there is the word astonished. It left the people astonished. This is a very strong word. This is what Lions fans felt after losing to the 49ers last week. Too soon, huh? We're nowhere near Detroit, so if that bothered you, sorry. <laughs> Astonishment is, is, is almost disbelief, right? You can't even believe what you've seen or what you've experienced. And the people here are sitting under the teaching <clears throat> of Jesus and they are almost in disbelief. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> now, this is a similar reaction to the people of Capernaum, which I was just talking about, the first time that they heard Jesus teach in their synagogue. This is Mark chapter 1. <clears throat> Starting in verse 21, it says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Notice the word there. When he was in Capernaum teaching in the synagogue, the people were astonished, just like they are here in Nazareth. The difference, however, was that in Capernaum, the people seemed to have responded favorably, whereas in Nazareth, they responded negatively. So why the different responses between these two communities? Well, in Capernaum, the people were open to the idea that maybe God was at work in and through Jesus. In Nazareth, the people were close to the idea that God could possibly be at work in Jesus of Nazareth. As the people of Capernaum heard Jesus' teaching, they were astonished because they had never heard anybody speak like this before. Jesus taught them with an authority that felt like it came from God himself, because it had. Jesus taught not like the scribes, not like any other teacher they had ever heard. He taught with this profound authority. And so they suspected that this man was from God, but not the people of Nazareth. Yes, they too heard Jesus teaching in their synagogue with that same kind of authority, that same kind of power. And yes, they had heard reports of Jesus' miraculous power to heal people of all sorts of things, but they would not entertain the possibility that God was at work in him in unique and powerful ways. And so we must ask, why not? On what basis are they closed off to this possibility? Well, we see here in the text that they looked at Jesus, and I'm going to paraphrase here. They looked at Jesus and they said, we know that guy. We know this guy. He doesn't have the right training on one hand, right? They say, he's just a carpenter. We know who he is. We know what he he does. 
He was never taken under one of the famous rabbis in Israel and trained to teach, trained in the scriptures. He's just a carpenter, so he doesn't have the right training. He also doesn't have the right pedigree. We know his mom, Mary. We know his siblings. We know Jesus' family of origin. He doesn't have the right pedigree. I would suggest to you that it's likely that the people of Nazareth were close to the possibility that Jesus could really be the Messiah, meaning God's agent of salvation, for the same reason that many other people in Israel rejected him, namely that he did not fit into their expectations of who the Messiah would be. The people expected the Messiah to come from a noble family. That would make sense to them. The people expected the Messiah to have the kind of job and the kind of training fit for Israel's deliver. He should be a king, or maybe at least a general of, a, of an army, or maybe at least a priest. He should have some sort of job, some sort of training that would equip him to be our deliverer. But Jesus is none of those things, at least not in the typical sense. And so the people draw different conclusions about where this Jesus has gotten his undeniable wisdom and power from. Back in chapter 3, his family was beginning to suspect that Jesus had lost his mind. The scribes and the Pharisees thought that Jesus was energized by demons rather than being energized by God. The people of Nazareth, they don't put any labels on him. All they know is that he can't be the guy. And this shows us the power of presuppositions. What do I mean? A, a presupposition is a belief or an assumption that you hold. And you hold that assumption before you see evidence or before you begin an argument. It's just kind of your inherent belief system. It's the things that you assume to be True, And those beliefs that we assume as human beings are extremely powerful. So for example, for the materialist, the person who says, listen, there's nothing beyond the physical universe. There's no spiritual realm. There's nothing supernatural going on. For the person who has that set of beliefs, those presuppositions, what kind of evidence could change their mind? I mean, you could show them... DNA, when we discovered DNA, <clears throat> show them that there's actually a language embedded in the human body. And of course, we know that if there's a language that presupposes and assumes that there's a mind that wants to communicate and you could show them we've discovered a language in our bodies, but they remain settled in their unbelief. That doesn't speak to them of anything supernatural. You could show them that our universe is finely tuned. So finely tuned that even atheist astrophysicists will say, you know, it really actually appears like our universe was expecting us. That's how finely tuned it is to sustain human life. And yet the materialist is not going to draw any supernatural conclusion from that. Rather, they're going to continuously look for an explanation other than God, for every single one of the mysteries of life. And even when there is no explanation for them, they'll just say something like this. Well, yeah, science just hasn't figured that out yet. We'll get there one of these days. See, when your mind is already made up, 
No amount of evidence is going to change it typically. For the people of Nazareth, their presuppositions about who the Messiah was caused them to reject Jesus despite all of the evidence that was in front of their eyes. They were hearing Jesus teach and speak like nobody else. They were fully aware of all the reports that this Jesus is raising people from the dead. He's healing people of their sicknesses. And yet all of that evidence could not bring them to accept Jesus. They denied him. In our Gospel of Mark study guide, VJ provides this wonderful insight for us at this point. I love this. He says, They presumed to know him because they knew his family origin, his relatives, and his occupation as a carpenter. In their minds, I love this line, Jesus could not rise above what they knew of him. Okay, they presumed to know him because they knew his family, his relatives, his occupation, and again, they could not see Jesus as possibly rising above what they knew of him. And isn't this how many people judge others, right? We judge other people based on family history, based on where they grew up, what schools they went to, what kind of profession or job they have, how much money they make. But as Christians, we know that ultimately none of those things define a person. A person's worth is not tied to those kinds of markers, As Christians, we know that through faith in Jesus, we become new creations in Christ. Through faith in Jesus, we become the children of God. We know that through faith in Jesus, all of us can serve God in meaningful and significant ways. And therefore, we know that by faith in Jesus, we are not limited by the categories and the judgments of other people. And so, brothers and sisters, let us not be like the people of Nazareth and judge one another based on external and earthly metrics. Let us instead judge people based on their inner life, their faith, and their Christ-like character. In the family of God, that's what actually matters. But these folks in Nazareth reject our Savior, again, based on their presuppositions, their kind of preloaded ideas and expectations. They reject him based on who they think he is, but It actually goes one layer deeper than that. They also reject Jesus because Jesus is a threat to their personal well-being. We see this in verse 3. The Greek word in verse 3 for offense, that we translate offense, is the word that we get the English words scandal or scandalized from. The people of Nazareth who knew Jesus were scandalized by him because of what it would mean to align with him. See, the kinds of things that Jesus had been doing and that Jesus had been saying had already gotten Jesus into trouble with both the religious leaders in Israel as well as the political leaders in Israel. We read about this in Mark 3, 6. There it says, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians. So the Pharisees are religious leaders. The Herodians Herodians are political leaders. So the Pharisees held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So all of the people in positions of power in Israel are already against Jesus. And so the people of Nazareth, like other people, were beginning to reject Jesus because he was dangerous. To align yourself with him is to put yourself against the powers that be. 
And this reminds us that generally, people don't reject Jesus strictly on intellectual grounds. There are lots of people in educated places like Santa Barbara, California, that try to make it seem like they reject Jesus purely because of a lack of evidence or because, you know, intelligent people don't believe those sorts of things. And sure, for some people that may very well be the case, but many more people reject Jesus like the people of Nazareth. Again, in Nazareth, they weren't lacking evidence. They knew this man was something special. They were rejecting him because Jesus was a threat to their well-being. Many people reject Jesus because the cost of following him appears to be too high. They know that accepting Jesus might mean for them rejection from their family or rejection from their friends. Or it might mean being mocked and ridiculed by people that you respect. It might mean giving up a relationship with somebody you care about because that relationship is ungodly. It'll certainly mean saying no to certain desires and pleasures that they enjoy indulging. And so many people reject Jesus not because they know Christianity is not true, but because they want Christianity to not be true. This episode at Nazareth serves to help us understand some of the whys behind people's rejection of Jesus. But the rejection at Nazareth actually also serves as a preview of things to come. What Jesus experienced here early in his ministry is going to be a preview of the final days of his ministry when Jesus is not just rejected by his hometown, but he's actually rejected by all of the people writ large that he came to save. In John 1.11, we read about this. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Now, sure, there were some, his disciples, but largely speaking, the nation of Israel missed their Messiah. They rejected the one that God sent to save them. How tragic. Additionally, this is a preview of the rejection of Jesus by people right down to our present day. In 1 Corinthians 1, through 24, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly or foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Jesus is rejected at Nazareth. And again, it's a preview of the rejection that Jesus would experience and still experiences by many people. So the first half of our text here that we've talked about shows Nazareth rejecting Jesus. But everything turns around in the second half of these six verses. And suddenly we find that Jesus rejects Nazareth. And this is the way unbelief works and rejection works. We reject the Lord and in turn we find ourselves ultimately rejected by him. It's tragic. We learn here in these verses, four through six, that Jesus will hardly do any mighty works here in Nazareth. We also learn that he's going to leave them in their unbelief and he's going to take his teaching elsewhere. So it's a very, very sad day for Nazareth. But the blame lies with them, not with Jesus, as verse four makes clear. Look at verse four. And Jesus said to them, 
Now he's going to kind of quote a proverb. He says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. This proverb is a sad commentary on Jesus's experience up to this point. Jesus, more than a prophet to be sure, but certainly not less than one, just came from Capernaum, where he was honored, where he was received, where the crowds were following him, where faith was continuously being placed in him. That's what Jesus' experience was. And now he comes back here to Nazareth, among his own people, among his own family, and his experience is one of rejection. Now, many Christians have shared Jesus' experience. Coming to Jesus has not been well received by those closest to them. And maybe it's a spouse who is frustrated that all of a sudden you're serious about religion and you want to follow Jesus, and maybe they even mock you or they ridicule you. Maybe it's parents who disown a child. How has your family responded to your faith, to the fact that you're a follower of Jesus? Maybe for you, it was a positive reception. And if that was the case, praise God. What a great gift to have a family who is cheering you on in following the Lord Jesus. But maybe for you, it was a negative reaction. Maybe coming to Christ created conflict between you and the people that matter the most to you, the people that you love. Well, Jesus knows what you're experiencing better than anyone else. He was rejected by his own. And this is where the knowledge of our new family in Christ becomes so unbelievably meaningful. At the end of chapter 3, we read these words. This is Mark 3, 32 through 35. It says, And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Amazing. I mean, praise God that even if our earthly families reject us because of our decision to follow Jesus... Even if our friends cast us aside and don't want to be with us anymore, don't want to be our friends, praise God that because of our relationship with Jesus Christ, we have been brought into a new family, and it's an eternal family. And church, this reminds us how important it is for all of us to make sure that we treat one another as the family that we are, especially those among us who don't have much by way of a natural family. We're called to be brothers and sisters together. We're called to love one another, to show hospitality and care and concern for one another. And what a beautiful thing it is, again, when people are coming to Christ and they're losing the relationships that matter most to them to be accepted and loved and included here in the body of Christ. Now, verse five is probably the most intriguing verse in our text. To be honest, it feels a little bit ironic if we read it not in light of the Gospel of Mark, but if we read it in light of just our own normal experiences as Christians in the modern West. It says, and he could do no mighty work there except healing a few sick people. 
I don't know about you, but in my typical experience, that sounds like mighty work, right? I mean, how many is a few? Like even if three or four people showed up today and you had some serious disease or some terrible sickness and somebody here just laid a hand on you and poof, it's gone. I don't think any of us would be like, you know, that was a pretty uneventful day at church. God was not doing anything mighty among us today, right? We'd be like, wow, God was moving in power today. This is amazing. So the verse does feel ironic, but that's the point. Mark can write what Mark has written because if, if you're reading Jesus only healed a few people of sickness in light of everything that we've already read in the gospel of Mark, guess what? That feels really muted. It feels very muted. It feels very small. And again, that's Mark's point. This story in Mark chapter 6 is set against the great deliverance stories of chapter 5 to make us feel this contrast. Again, I've said this already, but <clears throat> chapter 5 was about great faith and great miracles. And chapter 6 now begins with little faith and little miracles. Now, verse 5, of course, confuses readers sometimes because it, it, it reads as if Jesus is somehow handcuffed and limited in his power by the unbelief of the people in Nazareth. And so you read that and you ask yourself, is Jesus unable, does he lack the power to do what he would otherwise do because of the lack of faith in the people of this community? Well, the answer to that is no. God is omnipotent, meaning that God is all-powerful. And if that's true, then that means that there is nothing, certainly not your lack of faith or mine, that can restrain God from doing the things that God wants to do. The point is not that Jesus is now unable to do something that he otherwise wants to do. The point is that Jesus is not a magician that has shown up on the world scene 2,000 years ago just to woo people with magic and with his tricks. Jesus came to this earth as our Messiah. Therefore, all of Jesus' words and all of Jesus' works were aiming, aiming at instilling faith in the people he ministered to. And therefore, for those who rejected him, they found that they were cutting themselves off from the redemptive work that Jesus came to do. I'd say it to you this way. Presumably, the reason only a few people were healed of sickness in Nazareth is because there were only a few sick people that were brought to Jesus in Nazareth. The town overwhelmingly rejected him. We don't believe you. We don't trust you. We don't, we don't accept you. And if that's how they felt about Jesus... Why would they go get their sick mother-in-law and bring her to Jesus who they don't believe in for healing? It's only the handful of people in Nazareth who were saying, hmm, I think Jesus can heal. I've never heard anybody talk like this guy. I know somebody in Capernaum. They told me what Jesus did there. Maybe, just maybe Jesus can heal my child. And a few people brought their sick to Jesus. And of course, his power went out and blessed them. The, the people at large in Nazareth reject him. They're offended by him. And verse 6 tells us that this causes Jesus to marvel. It says he marveled because of their unbelief. Friends, there's only two times 
in all four Gospels that we read that Jesus, our Savior, marveled. One time is when Jesus marveled at the great faith of a Roman centurion. The other time is here in Mark chapter 6 where Jesus marvels at the great unbelief of the people of Nazareth. Both great faith and great unbelief leave our Lord amazed. He marvels at it. And when you stop and think about the people of Nazareth, isn't it a marvel? Isn't it astonishing, astonishing that they missed it? For almost 30 years, the people of this small town had the Son of God living in their midst day in and day out. They watched Jesus from the age of a toddler all the way up to about 30 when he began his public ministry, day in and day out. That means that for almost 30 years, they watched a person live a blameless life free of sin. They never once overheard Jesus gossiping about somebody else. Never once was the young Jesus caught in a lie. Never once did Jesus steal a candy bar. Never once did Jesus dishonor his mother or his father. Never once did Jesus have an inappropriate interaction or relationship with a woman. Just perfect consistency for 30 years. A life of unparalleled righteousness and godliness. Beyond that, they watched for almost 30 years. Jesus grow up demonstrating a life of unmatched devotion to the Lord. A prayer life like no other. A commitment to the scriptures like they had never seen before. He was hungry for spiritual things. Added to this, they saw this young man demonstrating wisdom beyond his years. Remember, we read that even at 12 years old, when all the people from Nazareth went up to Jerusalem for the feast, Jesus was in the temple at 12 years old, confounding the teachers of his day in God's word. This community saw this and experienced this for 30 years. And then add to that now, in the most recent season of his life, they're hearing reports of his supernatural power, healing people, raising people from the dead, driving demons out of people. They have all of this experience with Jesus and yet they still reject him. What are we to make of that? Well, I already talked about the power of our presuppositions. I think the power of our own desire to hold on to the things that matter to us. But the final thing we, we should take away from this is, is the frightening power of unbelief. The frightening power of unbelief. Seeing is not necessarily believing. We find that here in Nazareth. They'd seen much, they don't believe. We know that from our own experience. Many non-believers have witnessed the life-transforming power of Jesus in a spouse, in a parent, in a child, in a friend, and yet they're completely unmoved by it. They'll even say, hey, I'm really glad that works for you. Like, they're not denying the change, but they're not open to entertaining the idea that maybe Jesus 
could work in their own lives. They remain settled in their unbelief. The Bible teaches us that there's more at play in the human heart and in the human mind when it comes to unbelief than just our presuppositions or even our own desires and things that we want out of life. There's actually a profound spiritual element to unbelief. The Bible tells us that the enemy, the devil himself, has, listened to me, blinded the minds and the hearts of unbelievers so that they will not believe. And what that means, according to the scriptures, is that the Holy Spirit must remove the blinders from a person's mind and a person's heart. Here's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And here's one of the most terrifying verses. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There is a profound spiritual element to unbelief. And this, friends, is why we must pray. This is why if we hope to see people come to Jesus, we have to ask God to do what only God can do. We have to ask the Holy Spirit to intervene, to actually open people's eyes and open people's hearts. Now, I, I tend to, probably like most pastors, work really hard on my sermons every week in an effort to make them as clear and to make them as persuasive as possible with the gospel. But friends, I also recognize that nothing I can say can save you. I have no power to save anybody. God alone has the power to do that. I can't convince anybody to come to Jesus. Apart from the Holy Spirit working in somebody's life, I know that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, 1 Corinthians. And so I pray. Because Corinthians goes on to tell us that that same word of the cross is also the power of God to those who are being saved. Friends, our job as Christians is to be faithful to proclaiming the good news of Jesus, his righteous life, his substitutionary death on the cross where he took the sins of his people and the punishment for those sins, his triumphant resurrection where he conquered death forever and of course, his future return to judge. We need to faithfully preach that good news to people and simultaneously beg God to use that message to save the people that we care about. And there's one more thing. We need to not lose heart in the process. Along these lines, I was deeply encouraged this week by this thought. At this point in Mark chapter 6, Jesus' family had rejected him. But guess what? They would ultimately come to faith. And not only would they ultimately come to faith, but his family would play a prominent role in the early church. Jesus' brother James became the leader of the church at Jerusalem and he authored the epistle of James. His other brother Jude wrote, wrote the book of Jude his mother has become an example to every Christian throughout all time of faithfulness and devotion to the Lord. So at this moment, they reject Jesus, but in the future, they're going to accept him. And in the same way, I just want to encourage you with this, that there are people that you care about right now 
that maybe you've shared with, maybe you've been praying for, and they are rejecting Jesus. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Continue praying for them, pleading with the Lord to save them. And with every opportunity you get, every open door, share with them the wonderful things that God has done for you and the wonderful things that God offers to do for them. You and I never know what God may have in store for their future. Well, the story of Jesus's rejection at Nazareth is definitely not the happiest text we've studied together in Mark. It doesn't feel like an encouraging story, but that's because it's not meant to be. This passage in the gospel is meant to serve as a warning for all of us, a warning of the tragedy of unbelief. Through unbelief, the people of Nazareth were cut off from the person and the power of the Son of God. The person in that Jesus left them, we read in verse 6, and went about among the villages teaching. And the power in that he did no mighty work there. And so what a great tragedy that the people who had access to the Son of God for the most amount of time failed to experience the incomparable blessings that he has to offer. Through unbelief and hardness of heart, they cut themselves off from God himself. And so what about you this morning? You're at church. You're here being exposed to the teaching of Jesus and to the power of Jesus through the testimony of his people. Will you live your life settled in unbelief and cut off from God? Or will you open your heart to Jesus and experience his love and his power in your life? May the Holy Spirit grant that you do the latter. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your holy word. God, we thank you for the life and the ministry of our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that as Jesus returned to Nazareth in Mark chapter 6, and the people who knew him best and that he cared about most rejected him, we thank you that he did not just throw in the towel, just say, I'm done with this, I'm done with these people. But Jesus, you continued on in your ministry for the salvation of your people. Jesus, we thank you that ultimately that rejection was going to become even worse. It was going to result in you being hung on a cross. But we thank you that your word tells us that you willingly endured the cross. God, we know the reason why you willingly endured the cross was because that was the way to bring the most glory to God and to bring about the salvation of the people you love. So Jesus, we thank you for your willingness to come to this earth and to die for our sins and to rise for our justification. God, we pray that you would grow our faith this week. God, we pray that we would be willing as followers of Jesus to share in his rejection at times. Lord, that we would not be surprised when not everybody loves us and praises us as followers of Jesus. That we would recognize that that's the very same response and reaction that our Savior had. And so God, give us faith to continue to trust you and follow you even through rejection. 
And God, finally, we pray for any among us today that are not followers of Jesus. Lord, would you open their hearts? God, we so desperately desire that they too would taste and see that the Lord is good, that they would experience the joy of knowing their sins are forgiven, that they're no longer awaiting any sort of judgment from you, but instead they can expect eternal life through faith in Jesus. God, would you draw them to yourself even today? So Lord, we love you. We thank you for your incredible love for us. And we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.